macht frei. Work makes you free. That's a deeply sadistic and wicked thing uh, to, of course, put on gates that ensure death rather than freedom. Well, I, I think that that same assumption that either tangible or intangible liberation can be found for myself through the means of very rigorous work is extremely pervasive in our culture and pervasive within various forms of spirituality. For example, if you just go to the Barnes and Noble spirituality section, the bookstore that has all the comfy chairs, right, and the bad coffee, but if you go to the spirituality section, uh, you can find all sorts of ways which you yourself are going to completely control the problems in your life. Like, you can manage it. You just need the right author who gives you the right tips, little tricks to discover your true self, to live an empowered life, to do a soul cleanse through going vegan. I would rather die right where I stand than do that, <laughs> right? To meditate your way to success, to um, create a, a financially um, solvent and invincibly financially solvent future, whatever. But spirituality is like medication that you take to get this very controllable end. But even in Christianity, you know, uh, in Christian teaching, there's often, uh, the emphasis is much more about you than Christ, most of the time, I find. That the teaching is about how to um, raise obedient children, or how to have a better family life, or how to, um, you know, how to deepen your own personal integrity, or, or t tips to living a holier existence, or whatever but it very often focuses on the Christian rather than the Christ. That's the landing place for most people. It's really, Jesus is a means to an end, but the end is you getting a little better. Well, my job as your pastor, among other things, is to overthrow ideas that are killing us. Uh, and so I'd like to focus on verse five from this jarring and beautiful epistle from St. Paul to the Romans. And in verse five, Paul writes these memorable words that will take a lifetime to cope with. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So I want to speak tonight about justification. I want to ask the question, what is justification? And then the question, what does not justify us? And lastly, what does justify us. So it's simple. It's a simple sermon. But what is justification? Uh, and I'm going to conclude by speaking about a culture of justification by faith. What would actually occur if we started believing this? Um, but first, what is justification? Now, some people would likely say, if they heard me ask that question, Ethan, this is ridiculous. Everyone knows what that is, especially if you're a Protestant. Some people say, well, Protestants or evangelicals are obsessed with the doctrine of justification. That is completely wrong. And the evidence is on my side, by the way. Um, I was a member of the Board of Examining Chaplains for the Diocese of Pittsburgh for many years. I think for seven years, and you can get less than that for manslaughter. Um, <laughs> but I, I was on this Board of Examining Chaplains, and all these are seminary graduates, right? People that have taken their tests, gone through seminary, passed, and are ready to be ordained. And we are the last gatekeepers. And I was the examiner for systematic theology. I gave them a variety of topics and uh, terms that they would need to explain or define. One of those terms, I thought, was a softball. That is, define the word justification. Um, 
I remember one year I interviewed 20 students from various seminaries. Guess how many could define the term justification, seminary grads? One. One out of 20. Uh, the closest that one young woman got to the definition was with a quizzical look on her face, I think it's by faith? And I'm like, well, I'm glad you could say that, but what is it? What is the ding on zish? What is the thing? She didn't know. And now, if you don't know today, that's fine. I'm going to explain it to you. I will say that the medieval church really did mess this up in a variety of ways. The medieval church thought about justification in this way. Justification was the process by which um, you, as you cooperated with God, would become more and more just in your behavior. And if you became more and more behaviorally just through the sacraments of the church and acts of charity, God would accept you as justified. But it was, the, it was a cooperative process. You and God hashing it out, uh, and you would become more and more just in your behavior. But during the Reformation, with its emphasis on ad fontes, meaning back to the sources, that view was overturned. Justification in the Bible is actually not about behavioral improvement. It's not about that. It's actually a legal term that doesn't have to do with what we do. It's a legal and judicial act of God upon a person. Uh, the best legal word we can come up with to describe justification in this way is acquittal. Like when a judge acquits um, someone in a court, declares that they are not guilty and drops the charges. Um, and so this is the definition, I think one of the best definitions of justification. Justification is when sinners are regarded by God as blameless based only upon Christ's imputed blamelessness or righteousness. So that's the, the definition I'm going to go with. What is justification? And now the second question, what does not justify us? There was an Epis Episcopal bishop from yesteryear, one from Boston named Phillips Brooks. Phillips Brooks was once asked by an eager uh, and pious parishioner, Bishop Brooks, what is the essence of Christianity? The bishop responded, go and be moral, go and be good. By contrast, listen to what Paul writes to us in <laughs> verse 5. To the one who does not work. To the one who does not work. Now, the immediate context of this particular uh, verse is one in which Paul is writing a great deal about the earthen father of Israel, namely the patriarch Abraham. Abraham was understood to be the one um, plucked out of a pagan culture by God to begin this new nation of Israel. And God and Abraham have a very fascinating and complex relationship. But Paul writes this about Abraham's experience of justification. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. So Paul is asking a question at the beginning of our lesson. That is, what did Abraham's flesh, now flesh is a way of talking about our human efforts, our forwardness, our, our goodness that we can muster. What did that gain him? I mean, if you think about it from an earthly perspective, he actually accomplished quite a lot for an old man, you know? I mean, he wasn't watching Golden Girls on TV every day or Judge Judy. He actually was highly accomplished. I mean, it's an amazing thing what Abraham did in his 90s, which was to move out of his homeland 
to move away from everyone he'd ever known and follow a voice into the desert. That's an amazing thing. It's an amazing thing that he went to war. He put on a helmet, you know, and he went to war for his family. It's an amazing thing that, uh, that when God said to sacrifice your only son Isaac, he brought the child up the hill to Mount Moriah where he would have been sacrificed had God not intervened. I mean, he did a lot of astounding things. But even though he was a hero, hero figure, Paul says he had something to boast about, but not before God. Not before God, meaning all of the good things that Abraham did still didn't give him a right standing before ultimacy. That even if Abraham was terrific all the time, and by the way, he wasn't, he would still have no ground to stand on before God. He could boast to other people, boast to his friends at the bar, but he's not going to boast to God because God looks deeper than what we do. But more on that in a minute. And so Paul is, uh, goes on in this passage to talk about what cannot justify us. He says that the law can't justify us. In verse, uh, I believe it's 15, he says, the law brings wrath. The law brings wrath. Friends, the law can show sin, but it can never cure sin. You know, moral codes are necessary because they can compel us temporarily. Out of fear, sometimes we won't speed in our cars, right? We won't, we won't go 90 in a 45. Not because we don't want to, but because we're terrified of the Grove City Police. Um, because you will get a ticket, even if you're like five over. I know, I've, we've all been there. Some of us three times. Um, right? So the law can compel you out of fear, but the law can't change the courses of your heart. The law can't make you want the right things. The law can only compel you externally and only in a very limited way. Um, but more than that, works can't justify. What Paul is saying here is that no obedience at all, neither past nor present nor future, bonds us or rebonds us to our maker. Now, why would Paul say such a thing? Because he clearly thinks that you know, good works are positive in some sense. So why would he teach such a thing? Because the Bible is very honest with us about the condition of even our best works. Do you remember what Isaiah the prophet annoyingly writes in his very um, long you know, magnum opus? He says this about our good works, not about our sins. He says this about our good works. He likens them to filthy rags. He says even the best we can do. And he's not a downer. He's not anti-human or inhumane. He's saying that even the best things that we do are riddled with complicated self-interest. No matter how altruistic we think we're being, you know, we want a little glory out of this game. Um, and so the Bible is suspicious even of those good works. That's why Jesus uh, teaches this funny thing where he says, even if you've had a perfect day, everything went well for you and you behaved completely righteously, you should go to your master and say, look, no extra points for me. I only did my duty. That's it. But I still think that very often this idea that you're not declared righteous by God based on your righteousness, you're not declared righteous based on your goodness or your obedience, runs completely contrary to how we often think. We often believe that our labor equals our goodness. And I use this language all the time. I don't even believe in that, but I use that language all the time about I had a good day. Why did I have a good day? I can list you the reasons. 
I had a good day. I was a good man today, a good boy today, because I only had 100, you know, 1,800 calories. I was good today. Or I read to my child. I was good today. I was good today. I actually paid the electric bill instead of waiting till it was too late and getting a fine, you know. I was good today because I turned my project in on time. You know, I was good. That justifies me. But what Paul is saying is a revolutionary idea because all religion is based on the idea of incrementalism, the idea that you will be accepted once you are finally acceptable. But Christianity says God's declared word of acceptability comes first. So what does not justify us? External codes and obedience. What does justify us? Well, this is in verse 5, the full verse. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. And again, to prove his point, Paul anchors back to Father Abraham. He says this in verse 2, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, you may remember the episode where Abraham believed God. It's in Genesis 15. God made a vow to Abraham, who was an old man, that he was going to have a son. Out of him would come a great nation. Uh, and that all nations in the world would be blessed because of Abraham and his family's presence. And Abraham believed that. Now, I want you to notice in the narrative, he didn't believe it perfectly because he second-guessed it, he hemmed and hawed, but there was a part of him that really trusted that God would break through and do something miraculous and beautiful. And the result of that belief, that imperfect trust, was that God counted, the text said, counted Abraham's faith as righteousness. Now, counted here is, in fact, a legal term. It means to be credited or attributed. So Abraham was declared to be righteous not based on his righteousness or lack thereof, but simply because he trusted in the one who can make people righteous. So we believe, similarly as Christians, that belief or faith is the very thing that justifies. But not just faith, faith in Christ. Now, what is faith? Faith is not just intellectual interest or curiosity or even intellectual agreement. Uh, faith is something akin to trust. There's an emotive quality to it, a leaning into. In fact, you may know this, but there was a missionary once who went to the Hebrides Islands, and, um, and the, back then the, the people on those islands didn't have a word for faith. And so the missionaries had to use one that was close enough within their language. And the word that they had that they used in their translation of the New Testament was leaning. It's to lean into the cross with your whole weight, to lean into something. And I like that very much. Uh, and so that's what our faith leans into, it's, or, or our empty hand clings to. It leans upon the cross, that hideous death instrument that reveals both our sin and God's mercy at the same time. And the effect of this is crediting. Bernard of Clairvaux, the church uh, father, uh, put it this way. He called it the happy exchange. The happy exchange where our sin is credited to Christ and his righteousness is credited to us. God, in other words, will say to you one day, well done, good and faithful servant, because Christ imputes to you his good and faithful service. So it is a fully legitimate compliment to give you on that last day. It means legitimacy comes to you, quorum Deo, or in the face of God, based on 100% gift with no additives. The only thing that we contribute to our justification is two boards and three nails. But that's it. 
Um, Eben Alexander, some of you may know that name. He is a very well-respected neurosurgeon. He went and taught at Harvard Medical School. He was an atheist, but then, you know, sometimes that changes. Uh, he had a near-death experience in which he claims to have seen or experienced something from the next realm. Anyway, this is what he claims, that he heard a voice, and the voice said three things to him personally, and universally in a way. The voice said three things. You are infinitely precious. There is nothing to fear. And you will never be disqualified. Now, whatever we make of his vision, whatever we make of his story, I can tell you that based on the justification, not of the godly, but of the ungodly, through the merits of Jesus Christ, all is gift. And those three, three things are definitively true for you tonight, that you are infinitely precious, there is nothing to fear, and you'll never be disqualified. Because God has says, had said yes, even if the world says no. Our whole liturgy tonight, by the way, is trying to impress upon you the justification of sinners by free grace. So much of this liturgy is trying to help us see this. That's why the prayer of humble access, right before we come to communion, says this. We do not presume to come to this thy table trusting in, finish it, our own righteousness. That's off the table. So we don't trust in our righteousness. We trust in the foreign, gifted righteousness of Jesus Christ to you. Right? That's the... That's the happy exchange. And so Christianity, at its gospel core, involves absolutely no balance, no frugality, no a little of this and a little of that. It is 100%, 100% all the way from God to you. I often understand this is where the protest comes in, in myself and in others. Well, what does this mean? You're going to throw out the Ten Commandments? Are you turning into some, like, theological liberal? Like, what are you doing? All right, what about the Sermon on the Mount? There's a lot of things to do. You just preach through James. He tells you to do things. Like, what are you doing? Here, can I give you a pastoral word that comes from Saturday Night Live? Simmer down now. Simmer down now. Don't go crazy. Um, <clears throat> no one denies that good works are good to do, but good works are a beautiful result of being legitimized by God, not the trigger for him legitimizing you. They, they flow out of love, because when you're really loved, you love in return. That's just what happens. Incidentally, if I may, as your minister, offer you this cautious word, please, 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 over time, learn to distrust the voice inside yourself that either hates or minimizes the gospel. Please don't assume that voice of protest is innocent. It usually isn't. It's usually trying to defend yourself um, from experiencing the full grace and imputed righteousness of Christ and the freedom that comes along with it. So be suspicious of that voice. So that's something about what is justification, what does not justify us, and what does justify us. Now let me land this for us, because I think it takes a very long time to submit to justification by faith instead of works. I think it's very hard on us, because nothing in life works this way. It's a foreign word. Eugene Peterson uh, puts it this way. We are, most of us, Augustinian in our pulpits. He's writing to preachers. That is, we preach the sovereignty of the Lord, the primacy of grace, 
but the minute we leave our pulpits, we are work-focused Pelagians. In our committee meetings, and our planning sessions, in our obsessive attempts to meet the expectations of people, in our anxiety to please, in our hurry to cover all the bases, we practice a theology that puts our good will at the foundation of all life. Uh, we may as well erect iron gates around our lives with the words, More work makes you free. Um, but I think as we begin to believe that God really does justify sinners freely through the merits of Christ, um, that has profound effects in every aspect of our living. Now, um, I'm gonna, I ask this question to uh, couples that come to me for premarital counseling. I don't ask what denomination they were raised. I don't think that's interesting. I don't ask about, you know, if they went to Bible studies or if they were in youth ministry. I think those things are fine, but I'm not, what I'm interested in is this question. This is what I asked them. Was your Christian experience dominated by a grace energy or a works energy? What was more dominant? What took over more headspace? And I think the question is still a good one. So let me ask you these somewhat invasive questions. In your marriage, do you have a works energy or a grace energy? Because a works energy often causes us to be consistently competitive. You know, I do more than you. I'm, count, I'm counting up your chores and my chores, and I see that I'm really putting, putting in more energy into this thing than you are. And I'm not a slob. I don't leave my shoes at the door all the time. There's a mountain of shoes there. You, you know, I put mine away. You don't put yours away. Do you think that we have to live in this, like, uncleanliness and disorder all the time? But a grace energy would say, look, because we're justified by faith, we in this marriage can be honest about the fact that we're both ridiculous. And we're both incomplete. And we both need to admit our defects and seek help because we have nothing to hide. We have nothing to hide. Or what about in your family? Is your family motivated by a works energy or a grace energy? A works energy, right? Like we, in this family, we don't have public problems. We don't have public problems because we have reputations to maintain in this house. And we want to be known as hardworking or consistently cheerful. <laughs> or, you know, or we have this immaculate house and you, you dust every other day you know, because you're terrified somebody will see you know, fuzzy things on a shelf. Right? Or we boast about the intelligence of our children. Or, or really, functionally, failure is unsafe in our family. Don't fail. Or is it a grace energy? Because we're justified by faith, we want a family culture that functions as a sanctuary, a haven where people are not scrutinized. And we don't weaponize faults against each other, where kids can make mistakes that are not defining, where we can grow and learn and apologize freely. Or what about our bodies, our physicality? A works energy or a grace energy? You know, the works energy says, look, I have to be endlessly fit and attractive by any means necessary, and I will work out till I wither or starve myself until I wither, and if I ever gain weight or lose muscle, then I'm going to hate myself, and I'm going to talk badly about myself, and I'm going to cover myself up so the world doesn't see. But a grace energy would say something like, well, because I'm justified by faith in Christ, my security isn't written on the scale in the morning. That's one aspect of me, but it's not who I am. And, uh, and whether or not I like French fries dipped in ranch dressing or Wendy's Frosties, either way, what, you know, it's good. Um, I'm, I'm not what I weigh. 
I'm not what I eat. I'm not my clothes. I'm not my style. And I, I want to take care of my body because God made it. But, but that's not my whole identity. That doesn't control me. But what about our jobs, you know? A work's energy at work. I need to constantly posture myself so that my boss notices, approves, and promotes me. And so I work myself to death, and I'm endlessly worried about recognition, whether or not I'm appreciated, and then I get really resentful when it seems that I'm not. Or a grace energy at work. Because I'm justified by faith, I'm free from the law of needing to be honored and recruited and recognized. I'm free to work and serve because my legitimacy doesn't come from my labor. I'm the free servant of all. Or what about interpersonal relationships, right? A works energy says, I'm only good enough when people accept me, need me, cling to me, rely on me. But a grace energy says, since I'm justified by faith, I'm free to love people and myself in healthy ways, having boundaries when I need to and breaking them when I need to. Yeah. Or what about Christian practices or even Lenten disciplines that we've been talking about? What does a works energy do with disciplines? A work energy says, my success or failure in prayer, fasting, scripture reading, church involvement, devotions, etc., determines my legitimacy and my savedness. And consistent failure means I was never a Christian in the first place because if I was, I would be doing better. But a grace energy says, disciplines are very helpful tools that assist me with spiritual astigmatism, blind spots, things I can't see. They assist me in seeing myself and my needs and Jesus Christ more clearly. 